0: Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is a podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Today, we're at episode number 130, and I'm calling it Project Effectiveness in International Development. If you followed this podcast before, you may know that uh, my background, much of my experience, is in international development, and so this topic is close to my heart. What we're going to do is talk about uh, some of the issues in international development and how um, perhaps we can think about a new way to make it effective. Historically, uh, let's look back a bit uh, at some of the thinkers that that have come before. There was an economist named Albert O. Hirschman who wrote a book in 1967 called Development Projects Observed in which he talked about the hiding hand it, it hides basically two things. It hides the problems that will be experienced, but it also hides the creativity that can be brought to bear to solve those problems. So the hiding hand works on two levels. One is to sort of hold a veil over the eyes of planners uh, because they don't have perfect information about the project environment. They don't really understand what's going on. It's a different culture. It's a different country. It's... it's. Um, an entirely different world than the one that most designers of the projects uh, at least historically uh, were familiar with so there were always pitfalls waiting for those that were brave enough to engage in development projects one example he gives is the runafooli paper mill pulp and paper mill in what was uh, at the time east pakistan uh, that was a that was a project where the pulp and paper mill was going to be using the bamboo forest of the local nearby area of the Chittagong Hills um, to produce uh, paper and other products, both for Bangladesh and for export. But um, shortly after the paper mill opened, it just so happened that the bamboo forest flowered and died. <laughs> it's apparently a something that happens every 70 years or so. Uh, although um it was more or less unknown at the time at least by the by the, by the world bank uh, uh so the project the um the forest died and e- even uh the bamboo that that was left was not usable because it decayed rather rapidly once it flowered and so it couldn't be couldn't be floated down the river or anything to to the um pulp and paper mill uh so again the hiding hand Um, hid from the project planners the difficulties that were to be involved. Later, however, on the creativity side, other sources of bamboo were found um, and uh, the forest was replanted and uh, life went on. So a certain amount of creativity was brought to bear, but the economics of the project, of course, were were affected uh, significantly by the fact that the forest died shortly after the plant was opened. So when it comes to effectiveness, what we're really trying to talk about is how do we make development agencies effective? How do we even think about effectiveness in international development? Traditionally, most projects and most agencies have essentially used the GOLD, the GOLD model, G-O-A-L, which we've talked about in other episodes uh, to signify effectiveness. So a project was effective to the extent that it obtained its objectives, uh, and those, those objectives were set forth in the project document. And agencies were considered to be effective to the extent that um, you know, their projects were successful. Successful project equals um, achieving the objective of the project, and an effective agency is essentially um, one that, uh, whose, whose portfolio projects uh, perform well. So in recent years, and this has been a progression over time, uh, other things have, other techniques have come in to try to inform and to improve the project design and uh, appraisal process. Of course, we have well-known things like benefit cost analysis and uh, economic analysis, financial analysis of the agencies involved uh, and, and the revenue streams, um, all of these kinds of things. Uh, we also had something that came in in the late 60s in USAID called the Logical Framework. Um, the Logical Framework um, basically divided objectives into four categories, uh, input-level objectives, output-level objectives, outcome-level objectives, and impact-level objectives. Um, we've talked about these before to some extent uh, in, other, in another podcast when we talked about effectiveness, and the outcome-focused model. Well, basically, this was a new framework, um, and it, it encouraged uh, a storyline that um, proceeded from inputs, and inputs were converted into activities. Activities then produced outputs. These are project outputs. These are all within the control of the implementing agency and the, the project uh, managers. But then, um, outcomes are what happens uh, as a result of the outputs. So basically there needs to be an acceptance of the outputs, an an adoption, uptake, adoption, and use, let's say, of the outputs in order for success to take place, and the objectives of the project were set at the outcome level. So a project was not successful unless it achieved its expected outcomes, which were, let's say, in the case of a... Agricultural extension project where uh, the farmers are being offered um, new crop types and new ways of of growing the crops, uh, including perhaps new seeds, new improved seeds, uh, a package of uh, fertilizers, and and other things. So, if the farmers don't adopt these new ways of doing things, then the project fails because. Uh, there was no uptake, adoption, and use on the demand side. Uh, so in the lo- logical framework, um, there was this idea um, that projects were successful to the extent that the beneficiaries actually wanted what was being delivered and accepted them willingly and and uh, you know, adopted them within their culture. Uh, so the cultural factor and the design process uh, was then... Improved so that this the likelihood of this happening was was greater. Something called the logical framework approach was developed, uh, which involved users at the early stage of the design process to have their um, their needs and desires and wants and and ways of doing things um, understood within the project, so that uh, you know the activities and the outputs could be designed in a way that the outcomes could be realized. So basically, it was was about factoring in the cultural factors, uh, the real factors on the ground that made a difference by incorporating the users and their their world into the design process. Intuitively, uh, this makes a lot of sense, but in large part, this moved away from the goal model to a different type of model, uh, a model that uh, really didn't exist at the time. It's only with the um, advent of the outcome focus model that we've talked about uh, where, again, outputs are delivered, but outcomes um, amount to the uptake, adoption, and use of the output. So effectiveness in the outcome focus model is not achieved by just producing outputs. Uh, You have to also achieve the outcomes, which are demand-side behaviors of uptake, adoption, and use. So what's happened basically in development is that we've had the goal model uh, and management by objectives very much in the minds of managers and and most people that come out of graduate school. Um, And they've gone into development. And they've, they've essentially had that in the back of their mind. The logical framework has been there, but there was no real model that was able to incorporate it and to change people's minds about how to actually make it work. So, what you'll see in development projects, even even today, um, even though many agencies use the uh, logical framework, they don't control um, the statement of objectives to be sure that they are outcome-focused. So, if you look at a typical development project, and and you can pick one off of the web, you know, if you go to any development agency, um, you'll see lots of outputs that are essentially the objectives of the project. And that's just basically the old way of doing things. Um, so, managers are comfortable simply producing the outputs and then withdrawing and saying their job is done, sort of, uh, if, there, if there is a failure at that point, um, it's not because they didn't achieve their objective, they did, they, they produced the outputs, uh, but the outcomes may or may not have been achieved. So, there's lots of kinds of projects that we know, in fact, are basically output driven projects. And here I'm talking about capacity building projects. Uh, Capacity building is essentially an activity because you, you know, accept trainees into your program, you give them the curriculum and the the training and at the end, their capacity uh, has been theoretically improved. But what happens after that is not part of the objective because if your objective is simply capacity building, then you've already achieved it and the actual institutional improvements that are the logical result of capacity building um, are not part of the objective. So the next phase, the the next step in the causal chain is not uh, being incorporated into the objective. And so when evaluators go out to the field and look at whether the objectives of the project were achieved, and the objective is focused on outputs, then um, the simple way to evaluate that uh, is simply to say it was a good project, it was successful. Uh, We achieved the objective, even though they were focused on outputs, and they don't look beyond that point to see uh, whether those outputs actually improved anything else in the logical chain, what comes next, you see. Uh, outcomes were not something they were looking for. They were only really looking for outputs. Another common problem in objective setting is when you uh, have an objective that is focused on providing access to something, whether it's access to water supply and sanitation, access to roads, access to health care, access to education. All of these are actually outputs provided on the supply side of the project Um, It's up to the implementers and the government officials as to what access, what level of access and to whom access is being provided. It has really nothing to do with the beneficiaries. Um, The beneficiaries, on the other hand, in order to utilize the access that's being provided, would need to use the facilities, uh, use the educational system. They would need to participate in some way. And these things are not actually measured or focused on in the objectives when uh, access to something is, uh, the, uh, is, the, is the objective that's focused on. So this is the dilemma of development, I think it still continues today. We haven't moved away from the goal model. In fact, what we have now is the goal model on steroids because we've incorporated more and more indicators uh, to flesh out. Those objectives um, and the components of the project. Um, so, if you look at a typical project these days, uh, and and I just looked at one this morning, a uh, World Bank project on the web, they have a development objective for the project. Then they have the components, four or five components uh, that are being funded under the project. And then for each of those components, they have a series of indicators uh, about whether the you know the targets. Uh, how many people are being served, um, this and that. And so if you go out and evaluate the project. The basic idea is you look at the indicators, see if they've been achieved, and then make some determination about success or failure. Basically, it's simply the goal model, but it's been amped up by the indicators now that have pr- proliferated to, uh, to drive management performance. We see this happening in, in many organizations. In any case, um, it's a trend. With computer technology, of course, it's, it's easy to have multiple indicators and track data related to those indicators. Of course, it costs money to collect the data. And the question is whether it's really meaningful. The causal chain itself uh, may be faulty, the logic of the project may be faulty, and the objective. The ways the objectives have been set uh, may simply be um, outputs that um, uh, the project itself is delivering and the outcomes uh, are not really part of the equation. The other sort of failure I suppose that uh, people make on the objective setting process is to set the objectives too high. Let's say let's set set them at the impact level Uh, and you're talking about uh, very high level goals that can't be really measured for several years um, after project completion. And so when someone goes out to evaluate the project, there's only a speculation really about whether these objectives are being achieved and the project has contributed to it. There's an attribution issue uh, as well as as a time issue when you set the objectives too high. But what I think solves both of these problems, the fact that You could set objectives at the output level or at the impact level uh, is to set them in the middle, at the outcome level. And there, you can actually verify and look for behaviors in the field that indicate and that signify uptake, adoption, and use of the outputs that are being offered. In any case, this is simply closing the loop on the kind of benefit-cost analysis, certainly benefit streams, And benefit calculations were made uh, as part of the design process of the project, you know, taking into account the kind of expected benefits that users would be experiencing, whether it's time saving through, uh, you know, improved transport infrastructure or, you know, health benefits through uh, vaccination type projects. All of these require essentially uptake, adoption, and use of the outputs that have been delivered. And so if you don't go out and look for those behaviors that that actually signify uptake, adoption, and use, you're just not closing the loop. And the assumptions that were earlier made about benefit streams are not really being validated um, by observation in the field. So this is our topic today. We're not going to have closure, I suppose, in this topic. It's a very big one. But I wanted to bring it... To your attention, and to show how the outcome focus model that we talk about a lot on this podcast uh, does solve some of these problems. The problem we face, of course, is that or the, the barriers we face is that the goal model is still prominent, although it's it's been morphed over time uh, into something that's more detailed in a sense. The the indicators are taking over uh, as being the the main um, determinant. Of success. And by focusing on the indicators, we, we set ourselves up uh, for the problems of efficiencyism that we've also talked about in a previous episode. Uh, because as you focus on specific indicators at the local level uh, within a project, uh, you're often sub optimizing uh, certain things, and that doesn't necessarily improve the performance of the whole. Um, so you have to be very aware. Of, of how these things interact. Projects, very much like organizations in general, are complex human systems, and dysfunction is often an emergent phenomenon under efficiencyism, where you're focused too much on efficiency uh, without really understanding how that affects the performance of the whole. So I think we'll see this problem raise its head again from time to time. Um, And I'm sure in future episodes, we'll be coming back to this. So what we tried to do today is to talk about development and those particular particles of development called development projects. We started with uh, the hiding hand that was described by Albert Hirschman uh, in his book, Development Projects Observed. And we moved on to ways that agencies control projects by using objectives and indicators and evaluation methods. Uh, We pointed out that essentially the goal model, uh, which is um, prominent in institutional theory, um, is still being used in development, and yet it's not a very appropriate model. We need to move toward the outcome focus model, which essentially requires not only the the delivery of outputs from the project on the supply side, but a demand-side response, uptake, adoption, and use of the outputs in order to demonstrate effectiveness. Only in this way can we have we can we close the loop on development projects uh, because in our benefit-cost analysis and other types of analysis, we've assumed a benefit stream. But unless we verify that those benefits are actually being delivered and used and accepted, uh, we can't really assume that uh, success is present. So for now, we're going to wrap it up today. You can find more episodes in this podcast series at our website, ageofoe.com join us again next time when we'll hear more stories about organizations and their performance i'm your host charles chandler so long for now